You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. How are you doing? I'm good. This week... How's, Flor- how's Florida? I was going to say, this week we're also apart. Last week it was because of your COVID uh, situation and this week it's because I'm in Florida. Well, my COVID situation changed. The... Uh third person in my family uh, ended up with COVID, and here I am. Uh, basically, I feel like a nurse and uh, prison guard, um, but uh, that's where my COVID situation is, and you got to go to a great conference. Yes, I did, uh, in the warm, lovely weather of Florida, and I might not make it home because apparently there's going to be a big snowstorm Saturday night, and I fly back Sunday. Gee, tough for you. You're going to have to stay in the Florida Keys. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a nice place to be stranded if you're stranded there. Yeah. Yeah. I I would love to be stranded here. Although, realistically, I'm going to end up stranded, you know, in where I'm connecting from. In Cleveland. Florida. Yeah. Chicago. Chicago. So, you know, maybe not the best place to be stranded in a snowstorm because Chicago also will have a snowstorm. Yeah. And you might have a little bit of trouble getting a room, but I'm sure you don't mind sleeping in a, uh, in the Chicago airport. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's go with that. I, I won't Boy, that. Chicago's airport is miserable. That's a place I, <laughs> I hate flying through there. Donald Trump refers to their airports as airports from third world country when you compare them to other places. Most of them are not so bad. I mean, L.A. and Miami, they're all okay, But Chicago, oh, my gosh, it's pretty awful. I would rank Chicago above Miami, actually. Would you? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. It's just... Chicago, my my memory of Chicago is forever tainted of flying through there right at the start of the pandemic. So many people and knowing that so many of them likely have COVID. Okay. Anyway, why don't we get on to the podcast? Let's get on to the podcast. And there's lots to talk about this week. Um, But I thought that I would start by talking about a study that was done looking into traffic throughout uh, North America, like traffic patterns in North America, which found that the Lower Mainland, Metro Vancouver, has the second worst traffic of any metro area in North America, just below Mexico City, which actually surprised me. I don't believe this at all. I mean, anybody who's driven in LA knows how horrible that is. That's the thing. Like, I have a distinct memory of driving from L.A. to Anaheim at 3 o'clock on a Friday, and it took two hours. Yeah. Uh, I, I just remember on the freeways, being stuck on the freeway, the uh, amount of traffic just taking forever. Get off the freeway, and you're just stuck in forever traffic. And you can be stuck in forever traffic at 1 in the morning. But 
we, you know, we actually don't sort of take into account, I think you and I are both lucky in that we live relatively close to our workplace. So we don't have to experience the rush hour traffic that other people who have to use the highway do. And they, they looked at the length of time it took people to get places. So in Metro Vancouver, to go 10 kilometers within Metro Vancouver, it took drivers an average of 15 minutes and 10 seconds, which is actually, that's about accurate for my commute. Yeah, me too. You think about the drive to Richmond, um, for example, from the Vancouver office to the Richmond office, and that's 24 minutes. At least, um, yeah. Yeah, on a, on a good day, right? Uh, that's if you're not hitting any particularly bad traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a great distance. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it's well, not my, far. My house is approximately 10 kilometers from the office, which I know because I looked it up when I was renewing my insurance to find out because we'd move office buildings. Is this less than 15 kilometers from where I work? And the office and the house are about 50, uh, about 10 kilometers apart. And it takes me between 15 and 18 minutes, depending on the time of day. Most days, some days it'll take me half an hour to 45 minutes. Yeah, it's not good. But again, Vancouver has not focused on making it quick for people to get to places. They've deliberately made it difficult. Um, to try and discourage people from driving. Uh, And that's been part of the ethos of Vancouver for some period of time now. And so I think you can reasonably expect that that's the reason that we we suffer this. I mean, we could have faster roads. uh, We could have spots where there's less parking and turning it into two lanes, you know, all the time instead of just from time to time. Um, and it's uh, their decisions that um, that city engineers have made uh, that don't make it quick. Um, the interesting thing is, you get out to Richmond where you would expect it to be quicker because there's you know fairly big thoroughfares, but it, it's still not any quicker um, because there's a lot of traffic and there seems to be, I think, probably more road cars on the road per capita in Richmond than there is in Vancouver. Vancouver is a lot more walking friendly. There's also. So, in in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, there's a like very vocal cycling lobby. Yeah, I mean, I, they're they're part of it, uh, but it's just these decisions. I don't know. Maybe it's Vancouver's got to be a 15 minute city, and soon you're going to be restricted to your 15 minute zone. Anyway, we made a oh, smart decision that. when we built the offer, where we purchased this building and uh, constructed our office in uh, less than 15 minutes from both of our homes. Yep. So that way, when the uh, by driving, when the communist overlords prevent us from going more than fifteen minutes from our residences without purchasing a pass, uh, because we're assigned a number when we're born, yeah, and our pass number, yeah. <laughs> that that's my favorite conspiracy theory right now because fuck people are stupid. So <laughs> absurd that it's just not believable on its face. If you want to be concerned about something, be concerned about drones. <laughs> I be, be, con, be concerned about be concerned about cameras monitoring you in private locations. Yeah, yeah, or TikTok. 
or TikTok. Yeah, be concerned about TikTok. I heard on the radio today that the privacy commissioners uh, federally and uh, a bunch of the provincial ones, maybe all of them, have decided to conduct an investigation into TikTok. Uh, okay. European Union members have been, or European Union members of parliament and their assistants have been told to remove TikTok from their devices. Same with U.S. government employees. Uh, that's been apparently in place for a while. So everybody's quite understandably concerned about TikTok. But that hasn't stopped you. No. You had an interesting TikTok uh, experience this week with somebody else on your way to Florida, which is really entertaining if you can find it. Maybe Jay can put the link when he posts I, this on Twitter. I have this brilliant reply I want to do to the video, but I need a prop. And would you believe that where I am in Florida, the small town I am in, I have gone to every store and I cannot find the prop that I need. So I'm going to have to wait until I get home to film it. Well, every store within walking distance, I know Key West and I know some stores that are just outside of 15 minutes, Uh, uh, but I guess you can't get it because you'd be going outside of your 15 minute zone while you're there. Yeah. I mean, I could go to the other side of the Marina and there's like big box chain stores, but I'd have to take an Uber. So I know. I know your 15 minute restrictions keeping you from getting there. So I guess your TikTok is, uh, is held in jeopardy. Yeah. And it's definitely not the conference and the socializing that is doing it. Yeah. Any of it. Um, other information about this study and driving in Metro Vancouver, the average driver in Metro Vancouver in 2022 spent 132 hours in rush hour traffic at an average speed of 35 kilometers per hour. Boy, that's a lot of hours. But there's another study that was also released talking about um, work from home options and the fact that um, the commute for people is a sort of a nice little separation. It's like a door closing and another door opening. Mm -hmm. So there may be people who are, you know, not feeling stifled by their commute. They might be thinking to themselves, I don't have any work duties while I'm in my car, I can listen to my podcast or what have you. I don't have my my children uh, peppering me with questions and demanding that uh, I make them hamburgers for dinner just yet. Um, and a lot of people might be enjoying that. Here's the interesting flip side of this. So this study obviously isn't really law related, but there is a law question that comes from it. There's a push right now, typically among the Gen Z um, crowd, for employers to pay employees, for it to be required that employers pay employees who are required to come to the office to work for their commute time. This is an interesting thing because, you know, last week, Sonia Firstenau tabled some, you know, or made some suggestion that the provincial government should legislate a four-day work week in British Columbia. And looking at this data about people and the time they spend in rush hour traffic in Vancouver proper, like not Metro Vancouver as a whole, but just Vancouver city limits, people spend 197 hours a year in rush hour traffic. So it's a lot of time that some people might feel they should be compensated for. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then move as far away as possible from work. Yeah, right. get paid to just be a driver. Right. Well, but so, I mean, it's it's that's an impossible thing. I, I understand that people feel they should be compensated for it. People seem to feel they should be compensated for all sorts of things. And you go to work, you know, it costs you money to go to work. You got to have work clothes. You've got to have you've got to feed yourself while you're at work. Um, maybe not in our office because there's always so much food here. But the um, 
Yeah, you haven't been here. Now we have a, a beer keg uh, and a beer keg machine. Um, but um, it's so difficult to calculate that, uh, that it's not practical to start with. Number two, anybody, as I say, could just move further away. Um, it's your decision about how you're going to get to work and, and that. Uh, and if this is what people are starting to push for, I don't think that there's a hope yeah. in hell of that happening. You but also, a four-day work week, you know, they've tried it in other places and found that it works fairly well. Um, you know, I'll still end up working seven days a week because I'm the employer. That's what I that's what I said on Soapbox Social yesterday. Like, you know, a four-day work week sounds like a good idea on paper to prevent burnout, but the burnout just falls back on the shoulders of the small business owners who are already burning out because of the additional labor that they have to do right now. So it's, yeah, especially during a labor shortage. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I I obviously wouldn't agree with passing regulations that require employers to pay time, pay people for their commute time, because it also gets into like complex situations. If you have somebody who is like anti-car and they want to ride their bicycle to work and they want to they want to take a bike. Uh, the t- bike ride that takes an hour or you want to walk to work and your walk takes an hour. Why are you getting paid an hour? Because you chose not to take the bus or the sky train or buy a car. Yeah. I've decided to move further away from work. Therefore you have to increase my salary. Yep. Yep. Uh, in that case, Paul, I will be uh, moving to the Florida keys and working from here. You can, yeah. you can my commute. <laughs> the equivalent of the work from home. Yeah. Um, so goddamn jealous of you being there. Yeah, I know. Um, second thing I wanted to talk to you about today was a fatal accident that happened in New Westminster at one of New West's shittier intersections. There are so many, but one of the shittier ones and a pedestrian died. Nobody is being criminally charged as a result of the accident. Now, probably you and I not so surprised to hear that there are no criminal charges stemming from the collision. But I thought we would break it down for people because when things like this happen, inevitably in the comments, there are people saying things like, you know, somebody killed somebody. How can there be no charges? This doesn't make any sense. Somebody deserves to be punished for this. So let's talk. You can sort of understand that there's no legal analysis behind those feelings. Um, But just because somebody dies, I guess the issue is is a criminal offense or even a motor vehicle offense uh, established, and that's the that's the difficult thing for people. Um, So I'm I'm it's always bothers me when I see that. But you and I have dealt with so many of these cases over the years, where somebody dies in an accident, and it may be no violation of any law that took place in res- with respect to the driving. Yep. Um, you know, I had cases where uh, people were driving and um, somebody stepped out from between cars. Yep. Or people, you uh, know, throw themselves in front of cars. This does happen to try and crossing, cr- crossing. A, you know, that's too true too crossing a, a busy highway, uh, you know, on foot. Um, unfortunately, these things do happen. Uh, you know, you, you, you're, you have a clear uh, right-hand turn advance light, for example, or you've got a, you know, a, a right turn and there's a, a stop hand up 
because you have to wait before you can cross and somebody steps into the street and gets hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the reality is that there are a lot of accidents that result in pedestrian death are because of pedestrian error, either in whole or in part. Very common. Yeah. Very common. And also sometimes things are unclear. I will say, and people should know this, that any time that there is a death or serious injury with a collision with a pedestrian, the police generally investigate it as though a criminal offense had been committed, despite the fact that often there is no evidence to suggest that. Yes. And if you're ever in a circumstance where you have a collision with a pedestrian, um, you know, it, 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 lawyer up. Yeah. Uh, because you're in for a, a nightmare that's going to take place over the following years. Because look when this incident happened. This weekend. And look when this now decision is public. Right away. Um, that that driver has suffered all of this pain since the incident, right? Wondering what's going to happen. This hanging over their head. Now, I did want to point out that what is very interesting about this particular case is that the police, now that they've discontinued the criminal investigation, they're gathering information, which they're going to be giving, according to the news article on CTV, giving to the City of New Westminster Engineering Department for consideration. I find this fascinating because implicitly, it's saying that the police think that the person died because the area, the intersection, is not properly designed, is unsafe, and is leading to accidents. And people talk about the number of of collisions um, in the comments. ICDC data also shows that same stretch in New Westminster in um, a four-year period had 11 pedestrian-involved collisions. Now, the interesting thing about that, from my perspective, is that the... um, City of New Westminster cannot rely on insurance from ICBC mm-hmm. or a negligently designed intersection, which but means it takes it out of the ICBC no fault, um, and which allows the family of the deceased to sue the city uh, of New Westminster for to negligence. Su- to sue the city of New Westminster for negligence, yeah. One of the one of the unique little exceptions. Um, that you could argue uh, applies to a motor vehicle collision case. Because if if it were back in the day when you could sue for a traffic accident, something like this, we know what would happen. The person would file their claim with ICDC. They would file their statement of claim in BC Supreme Court. And then ICDC would bring in the city of New Westminster as a third party and say, it's your fault. But why not third party on your own, just more often? I mean, Eric McGracken would be the one to comment on that. Um, He's the expert there. But why not third party more often just to get around ICBC's cap? Just allege that every intersection is unsafe. Well, I mean, when you're in an accident, you have a collision. You know, there's a blame is to some person. Maybe the other party is the one who is responsible for the accident. You may not remember this, but. When um, 
Alexa Middelar died and yes. got the immediate roadside prohibition scheme in Canada because of Carol Burner being found to have been impaired. When that happened, the Middelar family also sued the city of Delta. Yes, I do remember that. Alleging that that road had speed bumps that were placed too close together and too high for the speed limit on the road, and that that was the cause of Alexa Middelar's death. A pretty good argument for that. Um, you hit a speed bump, you can lose control of it. Uh, two speed bumps too close together. You yep. might be able to substantiate that. I always thought, though, the fact of that lawsuit probably should have been a more significant feature in the criminal trial. I felt so, too, because that would just be a defense to her um, or her driving have, being the thing that caused the death. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the uh, there were so many problems, I thought, in that criminal trial, that criminal investigation. Um, and, you know, of course, you as a lawyer make decisions with your client about what you're going to dispute. But I felt that she made decisions that um, were missed opportunities. Not the decisions I would have made, certainly. But, I mean, again, we don't know what the instructions were from the client or any of that. So, Well, it's the decisions that she makes. They're her decisions in the end, right? Yeah. They are her instructions. And they're yeah, and you, it was could it be was, very good reasons for her to have made the decision she did. And it was definitely not a case, we should be very clear. Mm-hmm. There's no suggestion that there was ineffective assistance of counsel. No. She's a very skilled, experienced counsel. Yeah. So. Speaking of skilled, experienced counsel, we have an update from skilled, experienced counsel Eric McGracken in this week's McGracken Moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice Kraken. Welcome to this week's McGracken Moment. Uh, This week I want to talk about some BS, okay? And it has to do with the minor injury law and why is it still on the books. So backtracking a few years, the government passed a law that said victims of car crashes after 2019, almost all injuries are considered minor. And they set it up in a discriminatory way where they treat certain injuries as more important than others, even if, uh, even if they have the same level of disability. And I'll leave that maybe for another rant. But basically, if you have a minor injury, which is almost every injury, you were limited to pain and suffering damages of about $5,500. And they said this is needed to save ICBC money. Then the government went further and took everybody's right to sue away. So if you're injured in a crash after May of 2021, you can't sue at all, with very few exceptions, okay? But they've still kept the minor injury law on the books. Now, I want to put a couple things together here. The very few exceptions of when you can still sue for pain and suffering basically deal with non-ICBC claims. So 
if a vehicle manufacturer was negligent, if a garage was negligent in doing repairs to a vehicle, if somebody overserves somebody at a liquor establishment and then a crash happens and you sue them, or even drunk criminal drivers. If you're criminally convicted, you're a drunk driver, you're criminally negligent, and you're convicted, you can be sued. ICBC doesn't pay a penny in any of these cases. These are individuals or businesses that can be sued, but all of them have the benefit of the minor injury law. The government never bothered repealing it. So let me ask you this. If the minor injury law was put on the books, taking victim rights away to save ICBC money, but ICBC no longer has to pay for them, and the only people that do are negligent people that overserve patrons at bars, people that do a terrible job repairing vehicles, or criminals, criminally convicted individuals. Why are victim rights taken away so those people have a benefit? There's no public interest in that. And that makes me think there's a lot of BS in the minor injury law in the first place. Thank you. Now, Paul, I would like to take us to our favorite point in the podcast. Because I'd like to talk about a man who um, suffered an injury. Uh, Self-inflicted by the sounds of it, if this is the one you're going to talk about. Yes. And this injury would be characterized by ICDC as a minor injury. So let's let's move on to our Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. This is one I can't read the article and uh, I've held off informing myself because I don't think I can handle it. I have a secret for you about this one too that you are going to love to hear that I've kept from you. So this is the case of a man in Tennessee who was observed uh, driving very erratically down the highway in Tennessee. He uh, drove pursued by police through two counties. Um, And at one point during the chase, he turns onto a side road and opens his car door and police officers are able to see inside the car. And they see that this guy is like totally naked and covered in blood. He then closes the door and drives off again. And eventually they get like a spike belt um, and he runs over it and then they box him in. Um, And, uh, but even that took like several attempts because he kept evading the spike belts and only doing minor damage to his car. So ultimately they arrest him. Um, But before they do, he throws something out the window of the car at the police. Do you want to know what it was? I, mean, I know what it was. I don't even want to hear it. Go ahead. Plug your ears if you're sensitive because it was his own penis that he had cut off. Just sliced his own D right off. I'd say there's a serious mental issue there. There is a serious mental health issue, yes, um, for sure. Uh, he, I think, probably has schizophrenia because he told the police 
that he had to do it to save the world. And he there were voices coming from the radio that were telling him that he had to cut his penis off to save the world. Well, uh, the world is still safe. Now, Paul, which would proves you... that proves that it it uh, at you know that it worked. Uh, would you like to know the secret that makes this story just a little bit more ridiculous for you and me? Sure. We are one degree of separation from this man. Why? This counsel is somebody who's friends of ours? Or... No. One of the lawyers that we know from <laughs> the DUI Defense Lawyers Association happens to have gone to college with this guy. With, oh, the guy who did this committed the offense. So he knows him from college. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell me the name of the lawyer? I will tell you offline. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, uh, uh, the longer I live, the more I realize how close I am in connections yep. to people. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I know Gordon Campbell. I haven't talked to him in a, since he quit, but I, he knew uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so I guess I'm connected only two steps away from all of those people. Yeah. And all the other people that, uh, that we know who are, um, um, connected in politics in some way or another. Yep. Uh, not, not far away from any of them. Nope. No, it's crazy. The people you meet in the world and the connections that you have. Um, but also, I think, you know, the story. I realized that in law school because my, one of my law professors was uh, um, partner with uh, our then justice minister. And I realized, oh, wow, I'm very close to a lot of people as a consequence of that. Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry, I was coughing. Okay. Um, no, I mean, this story is also, though, an important reminder for everybody, and I guess this is where we'll end, that none of us are that far away from being the guy who severs his own penis, throws it at the cops, and leads them on a chase across Nashville. Oh, hang on. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree, Kyla. I don't want to even think about it. I'm, I'm already washing my mind of that ridiculous driver of the week. And looking forward to next week um, for the next exciting episode of Driving of, uh, of the Driving Law Podcast. Yes, and if you need to reach us in the meantime about a driving law-related issue, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week. 